Welcome to the Bioptimizer's Awesome Health Podcast. And now, here's your host, Wade T. Lightheart. What if you could double your energy naturally without caffeine or stimulants in just three short months? It's not only possible, you can transform every aspect of your health if you follow the 12-week blueprint we've created for you in the Awesome Health System. The Awesome Health System is a free course where you receive a daily video lesson spanning the most cutting-edge secrets for air, water, exercise, sunshine, optimizers, mindset, and education. It's something most companies would charge hundreds of dollars for, yet you get it for free when you go to buyoptimizers.com. To access your course, register to download the PDF report called Three Phases of Bioptimization, which gets you access to the report and daily access to the first lesson in the 12-week, 84-day Awesome Health course. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's Wade T. Lightheart from Bioptimizers with another edition of the Awesome Health Podcast. And today we're going to talk about, well, if I know the interviewee well, and I do, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but one of the things we're going to talk about today is dopamine, how to heal and repair the nervous system, and of course, the mental health epidemic. And our guest today is none other than Ronnie Landis, who has been a guest on this show before. Check out the show links to get that episode because it just evades my mind at this moment. But anyways, Ronnie is a leading expert in holistic health, natural nutrition, and human potential. He powerfully supports driven entrepreneurs, athletes, performers, executives, and influencers to perform at their best mentally, emotionally, and physically. Exploring the fringes of cutting-edge health science and food-based nutrition, Ronnie combines customized self-mastery training, subconscious reprogramming, methodologies, supplementation strategies, and a deep passion for helping others overcome long-held mental and emotional roadblocks so that they can experience every area of their life at their full potential. Ronnie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wade. So good to be here with you. Well, so we met, got to be 15 years ago, outside a raw food festival. I remember you. But it really has been that long, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, you were interviewing me at a raw food festival, and I instantly recognized that you're obviously you were a lot younger then, but I could see the passion and the drive and a commitment to excellence. Of course, you uh, were a martial artist as well, or still are a martial artist at a high level. You were deeply integrated, and I would say you were interviewing all the experts of that field and went on to do that over and over and over again. You built a bunch of books, and now you're kind of coming into your own, and you've recently released a book on dopamine, particularly in resetting the system. So what's been going on in Ronnie's life and his journey to kind of get to this point, to fill in the gaps. I just kind of gave a broad brush strokes here for our listeners, but I think if there's one thing that you would like to get across to our listeners today, this will try and go in that direction because you and I can go in 50 million directions yeah. and I want to, I want to be of most value to our listeners. Totally. Well, thank you for that. And um, yeah, it, it's been it's been one heck of a journey, man. It, it's almost hard to synthesize it. I will, but it's it's very difficult because it's 
I feel like I've lived so many lives within this life. And, and when, since you and I've known each other and like coming into a place of coming into the raw food world, being inspired by people like David Wolf, Paul Check, um, Dr. Gabriel Cousins, all of which I've interviewed many times and become friends and colleagues. And some of them have been my direct mentors. You as well, I've interviewed you multiple times. Um, you have been one of my mentors, both professionally and personally, and someone that I've looked up to and have incredible gratitude and respect for. I, I feel very fortunate because you know the phrase standing on the shoulders of giants? That is my life. Mm -hmm. That has been my absolute life. I have literally been standing on the shoulders of giants, and I've also actively taken the initiative to do so even when I didn't necessarily know that's what I was doing. So, you know, 15 years into the holistic health journey to be here now where I've published not, I'm about to publish my ninth book. Wow. Nine books, nine books, 300 podcast episodes, 500 YouTube videos, three full scale courses, 300 live lecture events. And God knows what else I've been doing these last 15 years on top of that. Um, it's it's pretty wild, you know, and so I'll just say this. It's an honor to be standing on the shoulders of giants and to to come into my own where I feel like now I'm actually I'm actually I feel like that. I feel like what I was looking up to back then. I feel like I'm becoming that in my own sense. And I, I think that's that's important just to say for everyone that's on their unique path, in whatever field you're in, is if you stay with it and you stay humble and you just keep moving forward. Um, you will get to get to that place that, you know, in, in other words, people like yourself and others that I resonated with, I feel that within myself now. That's and that, that's the greatest gift. So let's talk about um, an area that you've been focusing on for the last little while. And I think it's really front and force up. I talk a lot about it on this podcast. And that is the mental health epidemic. And I know you talk about a lot of this, I think, in your addictions-free lifestyle book yeah. and particularly around dopamine and stuff. So why, why do you think there is a mental health epidemic and why or, or what or what are the causes mm -hmm. and maybe what are, you know, the neurochemical aspects of mental health and where have we gone wrong because it does seem to be all the evidence is suggesting that mental health is scaling up and i'll use this i used this the other day and i want to share this for our listeners if we look at canada recently uh, released some data on suicides in canada as a country approximately 35 million people and reportedly before the pandemic about four thousand people a year did the what I call the ultimate decision around mental health and that they, they killed themselves, like they committed suicide, which is kind of like, for whatever reason, that person has, has decided that the pain that they are experiencing is so great for themselves or their perceived correlation to the people around them, whatever, that it would just be easier if they ceased to exist as a human. So it's to me, it's the ultimate conclusion and i would say a negative conclusion i would say that's a negative and i'm not saying i'm not here to pass judgment but it's you know the the, the mental struggle became so unbearable that death was a better not existing was a better 
option. And now we see that uh, post-pandemic, we're in excess of 10,000 deaths a year to suicide. suicide. And now the government is involved in assisting suicide in Canada and even suggesting it in situations where people can't pay their bills or they're worried about their homelessness. Like Dr. Dr. Kevorkian style. Very wild. And so if you look at that, that's 150% increase in just two years. 150% increase in anything over two years is a flashing warning bell. Now, that's the ultimate aspect. So if we were looking at mental health issues, we're probably going to see an exponential scale in both the intensity of as well as the amount of people experiencing some sort of mental dis-ease, shall we say. Not disease, but dis-ease. Dis-ease within the own cells. And who knows how many of those are treated? Who many of those are self-medicating? You know, who, how many of those are, you know, people quietly suffering? Yeah. What's your take? I'm I'm just processing the question and the the incredible data that you're providing because it's very contextual. Before we can get into neurochemical imbalances, microbiotic imbalances, the gut brain um, dysbiosis um, epidemic, if you will, systemic inflammation, heavy metals, environmental toxicity, radioactive pollution, EMF, EMF radiation pollution all these environmental and internal systemic bodily issues, um, nervous system dysregulation, stress, overwhelm, all of these things are part and parcel and we have to address all these things. But before we do, we have to understand the context involved. We live in a society, I, I wrote this in my book, I talked to Ben Greenfield about this on his podcast, I call it subtle death habits. Actually, Leonard Orr, I don't know if you, you have to know, you had to read that, read that book. It was something about immortality, an author called Le- Leonard Orr way back in the 60s. And he, he coined this term subtle death habits. And we live in a, a death, a, coincidentally, we live in a death phobia culture that represses death, but it's all around us. And all the, the habits, the, mm. the consumerism, the addiction-driven culture. It's it's like it's almost like religion in the way that they tell you to repress sexuality, but we live in a culture that puts it in your face with like right. pornography and marketing. So yeah. it's like a schism. We develop a psychological schism and it, it becomes like a dissonance, like a cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I always call it the, uh, it's, it, I think it was well illustrated in the, uh, the devil's advocate speech where uh, Al Pacino is pretending to be the devil and he's expressing this from the devil's perspective of this sick thing that's happening uh, to humanity and how he's with the people, so to speak, because he's like, yeah, you can just do whatever you want and and God's going to make sense. So we have this, you know, this almost philosophical ideal, which isn't matching the external world which we are living in. Would that be fair to say? That's that's extremely fair. That's so that's that's context placement. So I think we all have to have the appropriate context, not only for the collective situation in society, but for our own individual experiences as individual humans. And I think through things like collectivism, not to make this like about that or about society as a whole, 
but it's important because we get entangled into the culture or societal norms and it can be hard to untangle ourselves and get back to our own our own individual experience what's going on with me mentally emotionally spiritually mm-hmm. physically um and that kind of thing so so the point i was trying to make is that in our culture we have something called subtle death habits that's very promoted and that's something that we have to sort out and and you know you can just look at it like from the from the perspective of addictions this is what i this is a large theme that i talk about right. in the book so to me addiction is really just an external coping mechanism that we use to numb sedate tranquilize or medicate an internal disconnect or discomfort um, similar to pharmaceutical medications, which are used to numb, sedate, medicate, or tranquilize a physiological um, disease or a physiological symptom. symptom, symptom. I guess. That's right. So it's it's really just symptom management, and it's mm-hmm. it's really the same thing. So what we're dealing with, and Dr. Gabar Mate really talks about this well. He says that an addiction is not your problem; it's an attempt to solve a problem. Right. We have to figure out what is the actual problem. And the problem is that we live in a traumatized society. And as human beings, we have been wounded. We have been traumatized um, in our own personal lives, but also epigenetically through whether you believe in past lives or through our familial lineage of unresolved trauma that's passed on epigenetically to us. So let me, let me, that's a lot. Let me stop on that traumatized piece because I'm, I think this is a great topic. So how do we, like, trauma is a word that's thrown all around a lot. And, you know, I'm an old school guy. Like, I, I like so for example, I, I, I grew up in a world without computers. I grew up in a rural environment. I grew up with, you know, a, a dad and a group of men who did really dangerous labor, cutting down trees, chopping wood, driving heavy equipment, Mm. snow blowers, like tractors, you know, chainsaws, heavy equipment. Like the point of the matter is, is, is that if you made an air, you got hurt or somebody died. Right. And inside of that came a style of communication which was very blunt, very aggressive, and very loud because we didn't have time to explain the nuances of the subtle emotionalities or thought process if someone's going to run a dozer over Fred. It's stop, you know, like you know, like, like there's a there's a there's an attention aspect of aggressive communication. And it's actually done out of a concern for others. But today, if I'm to communicate, you know, my own languaging, which can be direct and sometimes aggressive, I would say, because that's the etymology of how I was functionally embedded on my communication style, very clear, very direct, sometimes would appear heavy handed in the idea is that, hey, dude, you're off track, you know, like, just like. The splitter's going to rip your arm off. Let me let me interject. But I see today that that's not the world that most people inhabit. They inhabit a world of 
getting upset because someone called them a name on the, their favorite social media platform. And I'm like, and they're quote unquote traumatized. Meanwhile, right, right, right. I've seen people get maimed in machines, you know, uh, then you have your local guy that, you know, went fishing and something went wrong and got drowned or a tree fell on him. The head in the ring. And, uh, you know, recently, I would, you know, for, quote unquote, what's interesting inside the social community in a rural area like that, I got some, you know, my mom called me the day. Yeah, the power went out in the wintertime and two of the linemen were working and one got killed trying to fix the line. And the other one's maimed in an emergency hospital. And, and so that kind of circulates through the community as, oh, what happened? How did this happen? Is a learning process to prevent the trauma from happen, rehappening or understanding what did they not think of? How did this go wrong? It's a dangerous thing. And then there's an empathy pouring out to both the victims, the victims' families and the community as well. And it was kind of controlled within a localized environment. But now we have this kind of like, I mean, you can just Google the most horrific things or the most beautific things in a second. And so wherever your quote unquote trauma is, you can be kind of like re-expressing and reaffirming and, you know, going yeah. into this. So how do you define trauma in the, the, the world, in the world and how it's impacting people's mental health? Sure. And that, that was beautifully said. And, and we could do an entire podcast just extrapolating on exactly what you said. We live in a very oversensitized, politically correct, agendavized culture. We won't go into all that. You and I know what I'm talking about. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's made that way through things like social media, and that has a lot to do with dopamine. Maybe we'll get into that later. Yep. We've both become desensitized and excessively sensitized at the same time. Right. That has to be unpacked a little bit. Um, but to your point, what? how do I define trauma? I define it exactly the same way Dr. Gabor Mate defines it, which is trauma is not what happened to you. It's the disconnect of the impact within you from as a result of what happened. So in other words, it's not about the story about what happened. It's the impact internally, emotionally, psychologically, nervous system wise. It's what it's it's what you feel. It's the disconnect within you. And mm. that's what causes. So, like a trigger, for example, like what you're explaining when someone reacts, yep. that's not actually there. You didn't traumatize anyone. It's their trauma that's a- being activated like a psychic explosion being triggered, and it's manifesting in that reaction because it hasn't been resolved. That's thank you. That's probably one of the best explanations of trauma or like you're talking about the oversensitization. Someone has created a disconnect with a trauma from a legitimate trauma of some sort. So they're not connected to how that made them feel or the emotional aspect of that, whatever that happens to be. And then now you say the wrong thing and suddenly they're super sensitized because they're completely unaware of the original sin, if you will, or the original impact and, and how they chose to respond to it. Yeah. It's, or, it's almost it, like- whether they chose to respond or how they just did respond to it. Much of it wasn't chosen. And they can't, they can't even take accountability for it because it's almost like the, the, the traumatized sub personality 
So the subconscious subpersonality that is traumatized or rooted in a victimhood because it actually has been victimized, but it's not integrated. It spawns itself and in it in in whether you represent as a I don't know as a, a white male or or as a whatever that that symbolizes or has a particular effect on on that person for whatever reason that creates an opportunity for that trauma ultimately like Carl Jung said the unconscious is trying to become conscious and that's great but if we're not conscious of the dynamic then we can end up going into what I call a traumatized cycle where we re-traumatize ourselves and continue a perpetual loop. And that's what most of the psychological evidence is indicating is that people, especially with early childhood traumas, you're just simply replaying that mode over and over again. And even with quote unquote healing modalities, maybe it's not as emotionally traumatic or maybe it's not whatever, but you're still operating and recreating that cycling on a micro cycle and micro cycle. So the pattern keeps activating. And I think all of us do this. And of course, you know, the mystics would say, well, that's your karma and you're here to resolve that completely. Yet there's a lot of pseudo resolutions, I would say, right. And especially in the new age world. And, you know, um, so Let's talk about why why do you think we're in this desensitized, oversensitized world? What 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 are the contributing factors outside of those external things that you pose? Is there one thing that you can point to that's probably causing the most amount of problems or or exacerbating this maybe this yeah. oversensitized, desensitized? Yeah, yeah, I can. And and there's a lot of like subcategories, but I'll, like the the context or like, you know, when I look at addiction you have like the branches of the tree, but then you have that one thing. If you pull the root, all of it comes with it. So when somebody's trying to suss out their addictive issues, you have to look at the piggybacking sub addictions that parabond to the primary addiction. Usually that's kind of subconscious or it might be a certain habit. Like for example, for me, I had uh, I had a few things. I had tobacco, I had coffee, I had cannabis that would cycle in and out. And I had to figure out, okay, if I do one thing like coffee, then I need the tobacco to downregulate and ground. But then I would do the the cannabis to then it would, but then I would be completely spaced out. And so I, I figured out, oh, actually, the coffee I needed to pull that out all together. So the desire for the other things was was eliminated. So, right. So, 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 but then, but so then you could say, well, heck, I'll just drink a show pour tea with high L- amounts of L-theatine with a, a vape bag of tobacco and only using CBD with some essential oils. That's right. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. Do you feel that a lot of the sophistication that has occurred in the holistic health community is merely hyper regulation of the same issue? Wow. You, that was the best way I've I've ever heard it explained, and and yes, okay. more or less, and and also too, you know, we live. In I like doing that. So it's just to, for everyone out there. I what I do is I find that I, I'm I'm a hyper regulated person because I've met a bunch of people that's got quote unquote the codes, and being aware, I mean, like, oh, I'm a little too this, I'm a little too that. So I become literally the externalized version of of uh, Huey Lewis in the news, where he's like, I want a new drug. Only uh, as opposed to using a drug, I, I, I want a new agent to help myself regulate through, but you don't really know who you are 
essentially there's, there's a point where you can lose who you, or you can lose who you are out of super regulating everything well that well that's actually that's a great that's a great kind of segue too because that's essentially what i'm driving at and mm. so like you have to you have to understand the symptoms in order to understand the cause you don't want to get stuck on the symptoms but you can't you got to work downstream you got to look at what's on the on the table right and mm -hmm. so so as we unwind that, you learn about yourself. As you go through a dopamine reset, you learn about what's driving your behavior. You learn about your, you know, how to regulate your nervous system by understanding how dysregulated you might be. So, so you know, ultimately it does come down to like self-awareness and learning about yourself. How do you get there? Um, or actually, no better yet to your question, what is creating this oversensitization and desensitization? It's it's the paradox that the nervous system is having to process in a world that's both hypermedicative and it's also overstimulated and creating ability. Mm. So I, so so if you were to summarize the cause of this dysregulation would be an overstimulated and an overmedicated. It's it's two it's it's hypersympathetic arousal and hyperparasympathetic arousal to to try to 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 as a as a response to the hyperstimulated arousal. Okay, like, so I got a question for you. I got a question. I got, I got a question for you. Yeah, this is an existential one. Um, My favorite. So, do you feel? So there's kind of a romanticizing that's happening with the past or being still or getting out of the world or all of that sort of stuff. Then there's this kind of, you know, Yuval Noah Harari version of let's just fuse with the machines. Right. Right. So one is let's just. Let's... Isn't that like a popular thing out there? Yeah. I read, I read all his books because, you know, I, I, I feel like he's, the mouthpiece of a certain group of individuals who have a certain bent on how they see the world turning out. Basically it's the fusion of artificial intelligence with humankind to create a new cybernetic organism moving forward. Then there's the people who are accused of being Luddites. I've been accused of being a Luddites of, of, of moving away from that model. And it would seem that we can't seem to get out of the polarization of those two things. And I was listening to Brett Weinstein uh, speaking about chatbot GPT on Patrick Bet David's podcast recently and saying, well, if the rate of technological advancement exceeds our capacity to understand it, what the implications of it, the end game is, is really negative. And so he believes that we've already crossed that, crossed that threshold a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, as an evolutionary biologist, what do you see? Where do you think we're at that paradigm and how do we, the individual deal with it? And then how do we, the collective, is this the equivalent of humans evolving to this new super species as some sort of cybernetic AI infused organism that is the natural evolution from single cell organisms? Is it 
some sort of bastardization Frankenstein project? Or is there a place for some form of better self-regulation in the environment we find ourselves in? I'm going to keep my perspective super grounded because I, I could go into a lot of different areas of like quantum hyperdimensional physics and metaphysics. <laughs> Did we just lose ground control? <laughs> and I could go into like the future iteration of us that is yeah. time traveling back here to, to timeline course correct and mm -hmm. I can't do all that. But I I... I don't know. So let's just put that out there. Yeah. But my, my feeling, my feeling, the most practical and grounded feeling that I have is just is, is what this, what this conversation has been about so far is that ultimately we have to get really present with what is and where we are individually. If we're, if we're going to steer the ship collectively in any direction that is stable, grounded, and, and has an upward trajectory, because in our own individual lives, we are being bombarded by so many frequencies, energies, noise, stimulation, and it's creating a level of instability, overwhelm, and overstimulation within our, our nervous system. So we can't actually track and detect what's what until we get fully grounded and rooted within ourself. And then we all somehow through the morphogenic resonance, we all one person's healing is another person's healing. And it creates a, it creates a magnetic effect. It creates a resonance effect of all that are in the environment I, that I do see happening. I do see that happening. So what are, what's happening chemically, neurochemically to someone who is overstimulated Simply put, they're, uh, you know, we all know their cortisol levels are being increased, adrenaline's being increased, so their fight, flight, or freeze response is being hyper-elevated, upregulated. What does that mean? That basically means that somebody's entire filter of reality is being filtered through a prism of fear. Mm -hmm. Now, camouflaged as anger or assertiveness or, or hyper-focus, but if you go, if you really, if you really downstream it, it's coming from a place of fear. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's, you know, so whenever we're reacting or responding based in fear, let, let me say it this way. This is the best way I've heard it said, Dr. Ann Lemke, she wrote the book Do Dopamine Nation. She has a great quote. She says, any deviation from neutrality, whether up or down is a stress response. So essentially Correct. we're living. And some are positive and some would be negative. Right. Right. And it's a, it's a spectrum. Right. Right. That, and, and that's probably the misunderstood aspect of the Sealy response mechanism of the stress response system is that without stress, uh, we die. We, we, we don't exist. So there is a, so how do we, I guess the next question would be what, how would we know if we are taking in the appropriate amount of stress relative to too much? So then that brings into a conversation of distress versus eustress. Okay. So eustress. Explain those for our listeners. Yeah. Eustress, E U S T R E S. Eustress is what we would call positive or productive or even anabolic form of stress. So mm -hmm. it's like working out, lifting weights. 
and the appropriate balance before it can become distress or so rest and recovery, you know, all that kind of thing. But eustress is like where your nervous system is activated, but it gets you to move. So for example, on David Hawkins scale of consciousness, uh, shame and those kind of depression and sorrow, those are the lowest emotional states. Anger is above that because it's more productive. Anger on a more, more, more active than say, apathy, where you have no ability to act as an agent on your behalf, where anger has a tremendous amount of energy, even though it can be self-destructive if exactly. left unchecked. Yeah, thank you. That's exactly right. So that that's kind of what I'm saying. So yeah. but but then there's a spectrum of of usefulness or productivity. So use stress is, is something that you can track based on your level of self awareness. And mm-hmm. then distress is is like dis ease a body and mind that's out of ease. Mm-hmm. And you know what that feels like, because you feel out of balance. So in, mm-hmm. in a form of use stress, you can be focused, you can be grounded, you can be um, you can still be calm, but alert and forward thinking. But when you're distressed, it's a downward momentum. Mm-hmm. Everything feels like it's going downward. It's a downward momentum spiral. And then that leads us into a state of depression, which is just really suppression or compression. And depression is actually neurochemically a function of a dopamine defe- deficiency. Right. So, and which is widespread all all the literature is showing the rise of antidepressants and ssri usage and all of this sort of stuff is indication and and the unfortunately you know the results from the pharmaceutical aspect last about three months and then basically you're back to the same thing now would you say that's because the person hasn't learned the appropriate self-regulatory mechanisms in order to keep themselves into that eustress kind of stiff point. They, 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 they don't, they, they just go into distress and that becomes that paradigm of too much versus, you know, right. and, and so, so explain that to me, maybe, because I think what you're talking about, we're, we're setting up here is okay. The dopamine reset, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and the key function of the dopamine reset, aside from the, the supplement protocol and getting off the dopaminergic stimulation or the addictive tendencies themselves, is the, is the techniques and modalities that you utilize to regulate the stress response, to regulate the, the nervous system. What are, what are, the, uh, what are those dopaminergic uh, pathways that get hyperactivated or hypersensitized? Like the, you mean like the neurological pathways? Yeah. What What are the things? So, so I would just say, what are the things that people do that are contributing oh, okay. to that? Like just basic stuff. Oh, like, I mean, it's a whole laundry list, but there are, there are like the basic components that I've listed out, um, you know, digital devices, which have been drugified at this point. Like your phone is a drug straight up. And it has the same, it has the same neurological effects, or at least it can, depending on its usage of that of cocaine. Yeah, I called it. I, I called the. Uh, I, I remember calling uh, in one of my books that I wrote digital drug dealing. Digital drug. <laughs> totally. That's that's it. So like things like social media, and of course it's it's there's certain things like I'm not gonna say social media is a is like you know being on social media is like being on, having a drug addiction. Although if you go deeper you might find that you you have some semblance of that. I'm not going to get into that. Cool. It seems like an addictive behavior. I always look at, like I look at it through the paradigm of 
productivity. So if you look at Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, mm-hmm. the general well-being of a nation is that its citizens produce more value than they consume, which is would in a biological system would be some sort of anabolic response, which would likely alleviate the senses of, hey, I don't have enough. Right. Right. And so if we look at what is our most valuable resource, that would be time, because it is one thing that is continually dwindling. And I think going back to your original uh, subtle death habits, there's, there's an, the, 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 the non-reality aspect of, hey, we, we've got a death coming down the pipe. And the right. time that I'm spending and how I allot that time is either trying to alleviate my concern about death. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of traumatized about the, my own potential death. So therefore, I'm not going to pay attention to it. If going back to the Mate model. Right. Versus and, and in doing so. I actually accelerate my death because now I'm in mindless consumption to alleviate. And I'm not producing, I'm, I'm watching TV. I'm watching a YouTube page. I'm watching Facebook. I'm watching Instagram or TikTok, which I'm essentially as a nation, I'm consuming empty calories. Exactly. I'm getting the perception of having this experience, but it's not the experience. And much of it might be saying, hey, I'm not good enough. I'm not a valuable member of the tribe because I don't have a million followers or I don't look as good as Bob or Mary or I don't make as much money because all of those are projections of power and authority to direct followers because that's how our brains are hierarchically designed. But at the end of the day, I have no checkpoint Charlie's between how I'm truly valued in the community. I think I'm a friend of Patrick Beck, David. I think I'm a friend of Brett Weinstein. I think I'm a friend of Joe Rogan. They they take up a lot of cognitive space in my life. None of those people know that I exist. I don't have a truly tribal relationship with them. I have a pseudo tribal relationship with them. And now for a bio-optimizer's fixed digestion tip supercharge your protein shake. Everyone knows protein shakes are a great way to sneak in extra protein, build more muscle, even replace meals and burn more fat. The problem is the highest quality protein typically absorbs at around 40%. One way to fix this and dramatically increase how quickly and effective your protein shake digests is to add two to three capsules of masszymes into your shake. One research study showed that pre-digested protein during a meal increased muscle growth significantly. To take advantage of this, just blend the open capsules into your shake and within 15 minutes or less, the enzymes will have begun to break down the protein into amino acids. This can make your shakes at least two to three times more potent. Some people do this and sip on their shake while lifting to provide their muscles with a steady stream of amino acids during their workout. To save 10% on masszymes, use the code SHAKE10, that's S-H-A-K-E-1-0, at masszymes.com. That's SHAKE10 at masszymes.com. Okay, you, okay, th- okay, so I'm so glad you just interjected because this is actually more to the point than where I was going to go. So, let's, so that, that was a bridge. What is actually important to understand is that the brain 
does not have a context for what's real and what's not, what's right. what's artificial and what's natural or what's what's legitimately real. And so when we're watching pornography, that's a great pornography, one. That's a great one to get into, right? That's that's my number one thing. And I have a program that I'm going to be promoting to the men's community called the Pornography Recovery Roadmap. Mm-hmm. And this this program is going to come out. It's, I don't know when it's not a promotion for it, but this is something that I'm going to be creating because I fully comprehend how big of an issue this really is. And so, for, for example, for people that don't know, I think it's yeah. uh, Pornhub is the number one traffic site on the Internet by considerable margins it's not even close is it unbelievable and so that speaks to what i was originally talking about about this this culture this these subtle death habits and people are like well what do you mean pornography and and death? how are those two things related well without going into a, a tantric Taoist vedic right. conversation on what happens when a man excessively releases a seed and all that without going into that you're sequestering your time and your energy, your mental units of energy, and the emotional the emotional connection or the psychic connection that is happening through the computer screen and the hypernormal dopaminergic stimuli. This is all scientifically backed. Go look into it. You can read a book called Your Brain on Porn or read my book. There's a whole chapter in on it where... When when you're watching pornography, your dopamine levels get so hyper elevated way more than they would in a normal sexual situation. Mm. So so Mm. what happens is the brain develops an association because, again, it doesn't have context between what's real and what's not. So the brain associates that as a normal situation. And so when you, if you've excessively watched porn, you have that habits built up into your system. Now there's a, there's, um, there, well, I'll just say this, there's something called porn induced erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So the, the chemical or the, not the chemical, but the electrical signal from your brain to your genitals, if you're a man, you may have a challenge getting it up, having an erection with a real woman, even though maybe you love her, you have a you have a sexual attractive connection with her. That's not an issue, but there's a there's a physiological and a and a cognitive issue. There's a disconnect there because yeah. your brain has trained itself to associate what's happening on that computer screen and the dopamine system as as what's real. So it doesn't actually register reality as real. Right. And to take this in, quote unquote, the real world, I think if you listen to Dan Bilzerian and, and some of his his uh, chats recently, I find very interesting because Dan, of course, if people haven't known him, kind of was, you know, a, uh, an Internet sensation and kind of lived that life where he's having a porn star lifestyle literally all the time. And recently he said, like, it, it it got to a point, it was so excessive in the real world. In the real but it's world. Like, it, it, like, it just didn't make any sense anymore. It was like, how many cars or how many girls or how many guns or how many jets or how many, like, it's, it's kind of like, and you see this in happening to the hyper famous, which if, if you look at fame per se, so what is fame? Fame is you've reached a level of status and authority amongst 
millions of people and i'm talking like the fame like hollywood fame like you know sports star fame big entertainment singers you know like the biggest names a-listers in the world and they start to live in these hyper strange bubbles because everybody feels that they know them but they're constantly in full of a room of strangers Right. And so now they uh, not only do they, so they, this can happen in the, in the real world per se, but this is what technically is happening in a digital world for almost anyone who's engaged in social media on an excess level is now that they are starting to experience the same type of biochemical response that someone hyper famous would be. And we know that that hasn't worked out. Very few people manage hyper fame well. Well, it's not, it's not, it's not natural. It's not normal. Right. Like I remember, I don't remember what it, what it's called, but it's that, it's that, um, it's that model where you can only really process like 150 connections right. yeah. over the course of a life or something. You can manage about 150 relationships. Right. And I find this interesting too, just as a sidebar, because I think I can correlate that is like over the course of my own career, I've, become friends i would say with literally several thousand people that i've had what i would call uh, intimate social moments not that i had sex with somebody or like that but i've had communication we went for dinner they stayed at my house i stayed at their house we we had a, a wonderful connection and it's and it's so pertinent and so real and so valuable and so great at that moment and i consider them a friend and then through the circuitous route that life leads us on is all of a sudden I haven't seen that person in five or six years. And then maybe they pop up and it's like, Oh yeah, God, yeah, yeah. where have you been? Like, I like, I, I have that same affinity yeah. that was bonded from the past and here they are in this moment. And I'm super excited. I mean, and I, I, you know, some people it's easy to go right back to that moment. And some people I think have a difficult, and that's probably. We call, that, we call that true friends. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I would suspect one's individual neurochemistry um, would indicate how well that yeah, you uh, regulate, how well you regulate that experience. Some people need less people and more frequent connections. Some people need infrequent connections and, and, and are fine. And I would suspect it probably is different over ages and gender. Like, okay. You know. I just, I just got a whole like framework that I'm going to just, I'm just going to try to simply, it's going to connect actually these two things and it all has to do with dopamine. Okay. So we talked about like Dan Bilzeri and basically what you're explaining is like the hedonic pleasure threshold. Correct. So yeah. That's a great word. Right. Hedonism, hedonic. So you reach a certain threshold cognitively, emotionally, like, you know, on all, all levels, but neurochemically you reach a certain dopaminergic threshold where you're, you're desensitized. You don't feel anything. In fact, the pain pleasure seesaw in the brain, there's a, there's a localized system in your brain within uh, I think the limbic system that processes pain and pleasure. So if you're chasing pleasure to avoid pain, which is the addiction syndrome, then you're, you're going to hit the hedonic threshold and it's going to swing you over to pain because it has to be kept in balance. That's, that's mm -hmm. how 
That's mm. how the brain and that's kind of evolutionarily how we're wired, right? Mm. So pause on that for anyone listening. Like just just take that in for for a, system, a second. If you're chasing pleasure to avoid pain, to avoid your emotions, so you're just trying to chase peak experiences, whatever that may be, and stimulate yourself, you're going to burn out your dopamine receptors chemically, and then your brain is going to swing back into pain, but the pain is going to be worse than it was before. And so you just want to be mindful of that. Now, um, and wherever that connects, we'll go. But then, so just kind of jumping over to what you're saying, um, it's like the depression thing. More people are more prone to depression the more depleted in dopamine they have serotonin dopamine. But so dopamine, dopamine controls time regulation or time perception. Oh, okay. There we, that's, that's a good, so our, our perception of time. If we're stuck in the past depression, if we're stuck in the past regret resentment, it means our dopamine levels are low. They're below baseline. When we get, when we hyper elevate our dopamine levels, like when we do something like MDMA or even coffee or caffeine, something that, that upregulates our dopamine, we become more inspired, more forward thinking, more, more, um, motivated. Then we tend to go into the future. That's a upregulated dopamine level. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So you see, so, so you see, it's like, Wait, so depressed levels of. So you can do a self-test almost. Do I spend more time in the past, which usually, which means I've, I've got repressed levels of dopamine. And if I'm super optimistic about the future, I have, I'm a little too dopamine stimulated. Right. You know, so it's like, and, and that's a very important thing to know too, because not ju- just because you're in a peak state or a hyper optimistic elevated state doesn't mean you have a full grasp of, of the reality from a neutral balance state. So Correct. Many- I've had right. great ideas. I've been super inspired. Right. But, so, but, but, you know, that doesn't mean that the person I'm thinking about doing a business deal or the woman that I'm thinking about being a relationship with when I'm in that state, that, that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm taking into full account the entire process to get there. So, so for folks, this is why very few of the relationships where people meet at Burning Man ultimately work out. You're, you're meeting someone in a hyper stimulated environment that may be, although the level of connectivity or sensitivity or feeling or euphoric that you are experiencing in that moment is, oh, I've met quote unquote, the one or the thing or the what is actually not filtered through the lens of reality and then you come out of that and then there's this subsequent crash yeah. and you're like oh geez who is this person and and they're saying the same thing because you didn't meet the person you met the marvel superhero character right right uh and there's also an interesting bonding so this is one of right. yeah. there's an interesting to. bonding in military We'll talk about men who fight with each other under the most extreme levels of stress have a bond that is greater than 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 anything else. So would would that same because of the hyper stimulation of that environment create unique bonds in the psyche? Well, I think that's actually what neurochemically does create bonds between humans, because like the way I was going to I was going to cycle it back 
around was to what our original statement about these connections that we form in my hypothesis and just my lived experience. I'm sure the same as yours. When I've had experiences with people that were meaningful, that were dopaminergically, serotonergically bonded, meaning we we had a great connection, it was meaningful, there was a great moment in time, if anything, or a series of moments in time that left an, a positive impact, then my brain has stored that data. So if we haven't even seen each other in years, but we reconnect, it triggers that 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 signature, that dopamine signature. And I think that is actually the bonding agent. And it, and it provides a sense of safety too, right? Is as human yeah. beings, we need to feel safe with other human beings. Right. So that's stored in our in our brain on some level. And it's felt inside our nervous system. And um, I lost my train of thought, but you get where I'm going with that. Well, let's go to the time piece, because this is fascinating. So one of the things that I think if we look at the, the, um, the usage of our time and what constitutes an addictive behavior, would I would say the unproductive use of our most precious resource, which is the time that we have in something that ultimately is detrimental to the the physiology of our system as opposed to supportive of. And I'll give you an example. So I go into the coffee shop this morning, right? Beautiful little coffee shop here in Venice. And I walk in and there's a dozen people in the coffee shop. None of them are communicating with anybody. They are on their phones or computers. They're like this. Yeah. Oh, this They're is- completely unaware of their surroundings. Yeah. Now, they're getting the stimulation of the coffee. They're getting the stimulation of the phone. Maybe they're getting themselves up for the day ahead. Oh, you know, that whole thing. I, I got to get my coffee to get my head straight. Yep. And then you're as you're getting your head straight, you're burning the clock. You know, what's the latest Instagram and social media or whatever. Maybe you're looking at your day or whatever. And there's a there's kind of like an anxiety activity build up going. And then they come out the door. All right. Ready to go. I'm off to work. I'm going to go kill it. And so they're coming from that hyper focus. Is that... Is it is those type of behaviors the ones that lead to the addiction mindset? Like, like what are what are the what are the things that lead to that addictive nature, that addictive stuff? Like, is it like is there anything wrong with going with the coffee shop? Probably not. But what is what point does it tip over to it's a positive stimulatory effect versus a negative stimulatory effect? Those are all symptoms of the actual issue, right? Because what what was coming to me was your original question about the mental health epidemic and why is that? Ultimately, it's a disconnection from other people feeling disconnected. We feel disconnected from ourselves, but we also feel disconnected from our community, our tribe, um, co-regulation. There's one thing about self-regulation, but you can't just heal yourself in a vacuum. That, that does not work. We need to feel socially connected to other people in order for our in order for us to truly feel safe within ourselves. That's that's just we parabon. That's how we function. Mm. 
And mm. so when you when you made the example about the coffee shop and people being on their computers, what I immediately thought of is that they're substituting that dopaminergic bonding aspect to their digital devices because their brain is neuro neuro linking virtually to this virtual mm. artificial interface, which is part mm. of the agenda. And so they're actually disconnected from the auric field of everyone around them. So they're they're in their little silo. And so right. their dopamine system is getting getting a false substitute for what they otherwise would be getting in a natural sense. And let me just say this too, because of that, they're not only excessively stimulating their themselves and their their dopamine system, but they're further denigrating their dopamine production. So they're going further down baseline. They need more stimulants. They need more of the drug just to feel normal. And it's Mm -hmm. just, it's robbing Peter to pay Paul. And all the while they're, they're making it harder for themselves to receive the one thing that they, they crave more than anything, which is connection. So now I need my coffee just to connect with other people, just to have a conversation, just to feel normal. And it's just this reoccurring cycle. Right. So you're stacking a series of modalities which are masking the true lack of connection that you feel. And you keep loading on more and more and more of those, kind of like increasing the dosage of a drug to get the same fact. They're chasing the dragon, as it's known in drug communities. But you're you're chasing a digital dragon, essentially, which is even more, which is even more concerning because the digital it's socially acceptable. Well, you can't really, you don't, how do you, a dragon in the layer, like in front of you is a lot easier to deal with. At least you know what you're dealing with the dragon on a virtual screen. That's, that's a little more abstract. That's a little harder to detect. Right. And it's very easy to hide it. Oh, and it's hidden. So, so for example, if you're on heroin or you're an alcoholic or you're a cocaine addict or whatever, kind of everybody in the neighborhood knows, right? Like it's pretty hard to hide that you smell like booze or you smell like pot or you're, you know, you're, you know, running through walls because you're lit up on cocaine at three o'clock in the morning or you're lying on the street in a, you know, pool of your own feces because you, you know, checked out from heroin. Those are, those are obvious social cues that there is a, problem but with the digital space because it's so hyper personalized and i would say socially acceptable like it's acceptable now to take your phone out at a a restaurant with your friends and be googling away and what's this is going back to the time piece i notice in my own life and as well as well observing others is that it's very easy to lose track of how much time is going by on this so I take in, uh, uh, time away from my computer, for example, like, and we'll take a day where there's no computer time. And I'm always shocked. And that's the word I would say. I'm shocked with how much stuff is going on in the day. <laughs> it seems yeah. like somehow I have more time in the day. And then I'm also, it's like, wow. A lot of things happen today where when I'm locked in my meetings online with my company and all that sort of stuff, all of a sudden, like six hours, eight hours, 10 hours goes by. And I'm like, what happened to that day? I don't know. So you're saying that's a good indicator 
that because of the stimulatory effect, this dopamine is, is also shifting your perception of time. Completely. It's shifting your perception of time. And dopamine is kind of a sedative in its own way. Mm. It, it, it sedates, man, this is really good. And this really explains kind of the addiction that the, so what defines an addiction for everyone listening is two things, the amount of dopamine that it produces in the moment and how easily accessible it is to you. That defines the probability of something becoming addictive. Which means this is the ultimate drug dealer, an endless supply of drugs at an extremely low cost. I mean, this is like very sober and this like I feel like a pin dropping right now. Yeah. Yeah. You've basically you've you've lowered the cost of the high. To such a low pro, pro, low level and the availability of that high virtually at any time that you want, any time that you're feeling the, the, the down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So you talk, so in your book, and I think this is a good cue up for your book. We're kind of running near the end of our time. So you wrote a book, right? the addiction-free lifestyle, and, you're t- and, and particularly around dopamine. I'm, I think there's a lot of people, I would suspect if you're going on a dopamine, like I see these dopamine reset courses or like stop your door and they're, you know, get off your phone, get off your computer, throw away all your electronics, move out into nature, sit there, you know, like all those different things, you know, whether it's Vipassana that you're going for 10 days and, you know, not sit- dealing with the issue. Right. So, so, what how does one reset themselves in in a way that allows them to 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 do so with minimum impact on their life and maximum efficacy first i think we've outlined what the problem is how would you look at the solution in the short version and then i know you can't give the whole details but you can maybe drive people to your book or your course and these type of things that you've provided for people yeah, well, I, de- I definitely recommend people do go to the website, theaddictionfreelifestyle.com. That's where the, the book is. G- go get the book, not because I'm trying to sell you a book, but because it will retrain your dopamine. I'm trying to sell you a book, folks. Get the book. Yeah, yeah, he'll sell you the book. I'm trying to explain to you that if you want to reset your dopamine, you have to start reading books. That's actually one. That's one thing we need to get back to is reading physical books. As opposed to reading online, right? As opposed to, yeah, the flickering screens, the blue light, the the text on the digital screen, um, which might actually bear out eye damage, optical nerve damage over time, over over stimulation to our optical nerves without the tactile left to right reading on physical mm, pages. Mm, the actual immersive experience of holding a book, because again, the digital screen, you, there's a disconnect. Yeah. Like you and I are able to connect right here and we know each other. So, you know, it's almost like we're, we're together, but you know, we were together um, a little while ago in Austin, very different experience. It's a little bit different being yeah. physically with you. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a disconnect. So there's, there's a, there's a, a neurological numbing. There's almost a passivity that happens 
when I'm either just listening to something or I'm looking at it on my screen, I actually have to limbically exert myself. We call that limbic friction. I have to limbically exert myself just a little bit cognitively to read a physical book. But that's I've noticed this development in myself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's and, a, and it's, so it's painful. Like, it's like, man, like I've, I'm, I'm, I have a harder time engaging with a book, which I love books, than I did 10 years ago when I just read books like a machine. Right. So th- those neuro networks have been have been like either atrophied or just downregulated. So to neurogenically, neurogenesis, the regeneration of neurons, brain cells, we have to physically engage with our environment, with other people, with our own emotional process, with tactile experiences. So mm-hmm. when I say go get the book, I'm saying save your brain. I'm literally saying, if you want to learn this information, you want to learn how to how to effectively reset your dopamine system, please go get the book. The information's in there. Um, that's that's number one. So I'm driving a bigger point on just physically engaging with your your environment and the things that you do. Um, I think it is valuable also to the point you're making with social media and our digital devices. How do we reset? our dopamine system in our, our association to external dopamine producing habits like social media, but without being lugdites or having this extreme, like I got to disconnect because that that's not the world we live in. We have to engage with the world we live in and be functional. I want to be a peak performer. I want to be a hyper functional human being without, without, you know, succumbing to the, the overstimulation trap. So what I've, what I've created is a protocol for social media where you just develop an appropriate relationship with it. None of these like, like addictions, the coping mechanisms, the strategies are not necessarily bad in of themselves. It's our relationship to it. Mm-hmm. I have a, a relationship with, with organic tobacco, with ceremonial tobacco in the appropriate set and setting. It's work works. If I do it every day and I'm just puffing on it to relieve my stress, then now that's inappropriate. And now that's, that's an addiction. So with social media, what I recommend people do is you designate two windows in the day, 30 minutes, ideally, and you delete all the apps off your phone. So it's not easily accessible. Otherwise you're going to autopilot and you're going to, you're going to succumb to that thing whenever you get bored. Right. Don't move into the apartment complex where your drug dealer lives. (laughs) It's, exactly. <laughs> you got to create a gap and a distance. It's like right. if you're going through a breakup with someone, that's a whole other subject on dopamine. If you're going through a breakup, if you keep familiarizing yourself and you try to be friends right out the gate and you keep doing this thing, you're never going to go through the healing process and the individuation process. So you're always going to, you're, you're always going to, you're always going to have that association and you're going to keep yourself bound. So there has to be a separation or at least a gap in, right. a gap in engagement in order right. to have that reset. And, and, and that's where you're going to feel the depression. Right. right? And, and, and you got to lean into that space because yeah. that's the recoil component of the hyperstimulation. Now you're in you know, the, the depression of that particular feeling that you had, whether that was artificially or legitimate. Um, I think when people go through the death of a partner is a great example where that's a natural feeling in a really deep 
depressive state that often incurs because the loss is absolute and 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 therefore there's a death going on and death is the perception of the absolute loss of everything right and neurochemically that's a that's a depletion of your dopamine your dopamine production going below baseline now the thing is your your brain has a self regulatory system if you allow it to go through its natural cyclical process we don't want to be uncomfortable we don't want right. to go through a moment of un- discomfort right. we want a quick fix we want the silver bullet we want the microwavable prescriptive this is a word i've been using prescriptive strategy in order to overcome the temporary discomfort of this moment it may not solve my long term problem but at least it'll temporarily relieve me of the discomfort of having to feel my emotions in this moment mm-hmm. and that is the that is the entitlement syndrome that we have all succumbed to and it can all be worked out through going through a dopamine reset um in 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 shifting our our chemical balance and learning how to regulate our our nervous system response take responsibility for our habits patterns behaviors thoughts and emotions and and you know chop wood and carry fire that that's a tall order when somebody has become um addicted to immediate gratification and validation so that so in a, in a sense this is the this is the this is the task that I feel like I'm, I'm trying to tackle. I don't know if I'll be successful in this, this world. And that goes back to your existential question. Where the heck is this thing going? Is it positive negative? Is it going for a a massive quantum leap? Are we going through a descent? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But to me, in my, the lens that I'm looking through, I feel like this is the biggest issue that I'm, I'm attempting to solve or at least provide some perspective to. Ronnie, where can you be reached and found and where can they get your book and to find out more and, and dive a little bit deeper? Because I know there's few yeah. people that uh, lean into subjects like you do and uh, appreciate that. So I think there'll be some listeners that will want to find out more. Awesome. Well, I sure hope so. And uh, again, if you want to get the book, theaddictionfreelifestyle.com, my website is hhphealth.com, health hhphealth.com. Um, you can reach out to me on Instagram or on Facebook, Ronnie Landis. I have a podcast called Life Mastery, and we'll have a, a new episode with Wade um, in the coming weeks, I'm sure, aired. And then, um, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I'm easy to access if you're interested in either working with me or finding more about my materials. Instagram and Facebook are easiest to shoot me a message. Excellent. This is, as always, a total treat. Glad that you're providing such a great service. And I think you're well suited to help people in this area, which is a growing concern for so many people. And for our listeners out there, um, if you're feeling overstimulated and hypersensitive, it's likely that you have an issue with a dopamine addiction. I would encourage you to even consider, just go check out the book. I think it's well explained and articulated in a way using the latest research and information. More importantly, take action and help yourself to unplug. You do not, you're not alone. And this is not something unique to you, but it is your unique program in order to address and only you alone can do it, but you don't do it 
by yourself. You can connect with a group of peers, a group of individuals and people like Ronnie, who's been able to overcome these challenges that we face uniquely in this age. So I'm Way T. Lightheart. This is the Awesome Health Podcast by Bioptimizers. I hope you enjoyed this edition. You can share it, like it, make a comment about it, or tell us where to go. It's all good in our books, but I want to thank you for joining us. And I hope this was valuable to help you live your best, your healthiest, and your high-performing life. We'll see you on the next episode. And now for a Bioptimizers Fixed Digestion Tip supercharge your protein shake. Everyone knows protein shakes are a great way to sneak in extra protein, build more muscle, even replace meals and burn more fat. The problem is the highest quality protein typically absorbs at around 40%. One way to fix this and dramatically increase how quickly and effective your protein shake digests is to add two to three capsules of masszymes into your shake. One research study showed that pre-digested protein during a meal increased muscle growth significantly. To take advantage of this, just blend the open capsules into your shake and within 15 minutes or less, the enzymes will have begun to break down the protein into amino acids. This can make your shakes at least two to three times more potent. Some people do this and sip on their shake while lifting to provide their muscles with a steady stream of amino acids during their workout. To save 10% on masszymes, use the code SHAKE10, that's S-H-A-K-E-1-0, at masszymes.com. That's SHAKE10 at masszymes.com. Thank you for listening to the Bioptimizer's Awesome Health Podcast. You can find more information at bioptimizers.com.